The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and the Bonhoeffer Project, led by Bill Hull, hosted a track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Bill Hull and his co-author, Ben Sobels, have written a book called The Discipleship Gospel. Since it's a Discipleship.org resource, we've made available for free the primer for this book. The premise of the book is that many people try to make disciples without first making sure that people believe the right gospel, one that leads to discipleship. It's called Upstream Theology, according to the authors. This is the discipleship gospel, which is really the gospel that Jesus preached. In their book, they clearly lay out the gospel that Jesus preached according to scripture and how you can teach this gospel that leads to discipleship. Download the primer for this book at discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel for your free primer. Now here's today's track session from the Bonhoeffer Project. Before I actually get into Can the West Be One, which uh, we'll uh, spend the rest of our time on today, and we'll do some Q&A toward the end, what else I'd like to talk to you about is I can explain the Bonhoeffer Project to you in one minute. So be care- listen carefully, and I'll try to get it done. So what we do is we take a motivated leader and we start with, in the first three months that you're with us, we talk about why. And that why is the gospel. And this is where we hopefully will alter your mind or change your mind, or affirm what you already believe in your mind about the nature of the gospel. But primarily, it's about a gospel where discipleship is a natural part of what it means to be saved. That's the first thing that we do in the Bonhoeffer Project. The second thing we do is called what? And that's built around the command to make disciples. And this is where we define a disciple because it's amazing to me how often we don't, we don't, haven't defined them. And you can create board meetings in churches that go on for several hours where people are trying to, well, what is it exactly we're supposed to be doing here? What's the product look like? And we really aren't clear on it. And over here, that's the, uh, what we call the heart. And because the disciple, the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make. Now, the final thing we do in the last third of the year is we talk about how. And that is the plan. And this is where we deal with habits. For example, in the parable of the sower, if you realize that where you get 30, 60, and 100 fold increase is in the four soil people, then why is it that our schedule reflects pretty much a domination of the first three soils that dominate our time and sap our strength and frustrate us and make us want to resign? So the, so the gospel you believe determines the disciple you make, which creates the plan that you have. And I know I'm over a minute. I got a little wordy here. Uh, which, but that's essentially what it is. That's what we do. All right? So that way, there's no suspense. Now, today I'd like to talk a little bit about this, the why. Why bother with discipleship? What difference does it make? Well, in 1937, a British missionary named Leslie Newbigin left the Midlands of England and went to India. And there he stayed primarily there for 40 years. And during that 40 years, he became not only a missionary statesman, he was also had a very keen mind. In fact, he was a great scholar. He wrote one of the best books, a little jewel called Sin and Salvation. Uh, I, I highly recommend it by Leslie Newbigin. It's a short book. He actually wrote it in another language, the language of the peoples that he was working with. So, you know, if you can write a really good book in another language that's really clear, that's pretty impressive. So that's Newbigin. Uh, He returned in 1979 to the United Kingdom as a retired missionary, which was quite a laugh. You know, a lot of people retire, but they don't actually retire. He just retired from that. 
But one of the things he did was he, of course, having lived all those years in India, he was assigned then by a bishop in order to work in a church that was part people of Indian descent, and then, of course, just the Anglos, uh, the, the Brits. And he and the pastor, of uh, the other pastor, they would go and visit. And when they'd visit the people from India, uh, they would be very gracious and very open because in Indian culture, they don't divide the sacred from the secular. They don't have a two-storied, if you go back to Francis Schaeffer, view of truth. They don't separate fact and faith. But, of course, in the English-speaking world in particular, in the Western world, we do. And so when they, when they would go to a home of an Anglo, what would happen was the Anglos would be extremely hostile and uh, indifferent even, and essentially kick the church to the curb and say it was irrelevant. Or what the church really ought to do is just take care of the homeless, the poor, and those people who have special problems, but leave the really important stuff to us. And what he learned when he returned to the United Kingdom is he, came, he claimed that the Western culture had become the most resistant to the gospel ever in the history of the church. It never found a more hostile a more indifferent, a more resistant culture. And so the question that he asked, can the West be one? Now, there's two books I recommend by Newbegin that describes this. One is Foolishness to the Greeks. And the second one is uh, Pluralism, I mean, uh, the Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. They're both really great books. And he addresses a lot of these problems. But the, can the church, the question is, can the church establish a missionary encounter with a culture? And that's the big issue we're facing right now. I mean, how fast has same-sex marriage become acceptable? Uh, now we're dealing with transgender. We're dealing with all these human sexuality issues, aren't we? And those are just two of the things that are on the highlights. But... It, it runs much deeper than that. And these kinds of things are becoming very, uh, have very powerful, they're very powerful forces, and it makes it more difficult for people to engage the culture. And so, uh, if you, uh, there was a, a statement by uh, Charles Malik, who back in the 19, late 50s and early 60s was General Secretary of the United Nations, and he said this, and he was a Christian, Lebanese Christian. He said, the problem is not only to win souls, but to save minds. If you win the whole world and lose the mind of the world, you will soon discover you have not won the world. And so when we engage culture, we have to not only address the heart issues, we have to address the mental issue, the frameworks. That's why Paul wrote, I think, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, as we look at this, uh, there's, uh, today, there's many different, uh, uh, there's forms of apologetics. But, you know, the, the standard form of apologetics, when I was, when I was young, when, I, when Jane and I first worked on the college campus, you could go, uh, to the student union, and you could talk to people, and you could say, you could use C.S. Lewis's uh, little ditty, uh, either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or God. And it would work, because they believed that truth was a category, that they believed in logic, A that can't equal B, you know, and all those kinds of things that we were all taught, that absolute truth does exist. That's no longer true. Uh, People say, well, that's interesting. Uh, and so you, what we do is we have this worldview that's a Christian worldview that begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's the starting point. And when you have that worldview and you start talking to somebody with an entirely different worldview, like my next door neighbor, uh, I remember he came over about, well, January 1st a year ago and announced to us what his real occupation was. Before that, he didn't tell us. Once in a while, we'd get a big package. He'd say, I'm going to have it delivered to your porch. 
But would you hold it for me? They're very valuable. So we would hold it for him. And then we found out on January 1st, two years ago, when selling pot was legalized in California, that he was essentially a bong salesman. Uh, so I, I'm next door to a bong salesman. He, uh, he makes good money. And he sits out on his porch, oftentimes on Sunday morning, the lotus position with a little Buddha and the incense going up and the little fruit offerings and everything like that. And he's chanting and all that. And remember James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door? That's it. He, that's a different universe right next door to me. And so how do I engage that man? I don't engage him by going over there and shame on you, you big sinner. You idiot. What are you doing with incense and the little fat Buddha. <laughs> that, that's not going to work. No. No, I have, to, I, I have to get in his head. I have to enter into his worldview and start asking him questions and critique him with the, the basic questions about, well, what good is this for you? That kind of thing. So when we engage the, other, engage the culture, can we engage the culture? Well, here's one of the things that Newbigin said. Newbigin said, first of all, here's what a missionary encounter with the world is not. First, there's three things. I know you can't read them. Sorry about that. The screen's not very large. Uh, but it's, first of all, it's not a withdrawal. So I, I suppose you would say the Amish have not really tried to establish a missionary encounter with the culture. They're not even trying. Uh, I grew up in the Pilgrim Holiness Church, uh, which also didn't try very hard. Uh, the, we didn't have, the women didn't wear makeup, women didn't wear jewelry, uh, there were no wedding bands or wedding rings, uh, there was no televisions, no movies, no spending money on Sunday. Uh, the, the girls that might, you know, 10 year old girls would wear dresses, long sleeve, long dresses year round. Uh, it was their play clothes as well as their dress clothes. And that was the way that I thought Christianity was. But certainly my church was not trying to establish a missionary encounter with the culture. It was trying to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord of hosts. I mean, that was our motto. <laughs> the next thing is that uh, he says is it's uh, not a takeover. Now, I, I suppose that uh, all of us uh, in reading history have concluded, I think probably we should conclude if we haven't, that whenever the church has tried to take over the world, things have gone badly. Uh, that usually when you take over something, you need an army. Uh, you need some sort of decision-making mechanism, maybe a parliament or something like that. And so you try to take over uh, the regions of the world uh, like I think uh, our speaker in the earlier session, uh, I heard him earlier today talking about how Islam, uh, they are not, when they come into a culture, they are there to eventually dominate that culture, control that culture. And uh, that's not really what Christianity is about. It's not primarily a political force. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so every time we've tried to take things over, now it really doesn't matter sometimes what the religion is. It could be the religion of the Communist Manifesto. It could be Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. It could be uh, Buddhist. It could be uh, Sharia law. It could be Roman paganism. It's all of these kinds of things. But what they all really misunderstand is the human being. The human being needs to be free, longs to be free, longs to uh, make choices about their own life and these kinds of things. And so it's just almost impossible for any system to last very long when you lose human freedom. And Christianity is not, uh, is not there to hinder human freedom. It's to liberate people to do the right thing. And so it's not a takeover. Uh, in one of the things that uh, I get humored by is how people rely so much on reason. You know, reason is important, but reason 
is a, a human ability that is flawed, uh, that makes mistakes. We all know this. We've all made those mistakes. And so uh, when Francis Schaeffer, back in the 1970s, wrote a book called Escape from Reason, what he was talking about is people wanting to escape from the trap of reason. That because when you relied on reason alone, you ended up in despair. He called it the line of despair. You end up with a life that doesn't really have any meaning. Uh, a life that doesn't really, it might make sense in some frames, but not really in the total one. So uh, it's like what happened to Leo Tolstoy when he became disillusioned and he had become quite famous, you know, with War and Peace and, and some of the, and Anna Karenina and other books that he made him quite famous and he, uh, and rich, and he had a great estate. But when he, wa he was in such great despair uh, that when he walked around his great estate, uh, he wouldn't take uh, a rope with him because he was afraid that he might uh, hang himself or a gun because he was afraid he might shoot himself. Now that might seem extreme. It is extreme, frankly. But that's what, um, when we try to take over something, uh, we try to dominate, we try to replace God, it doesn't work out. Now, the third thing it's not is an assimilation. It, the, when you talk about an assimilation, you know, if we, if we went through all our religious activities and we were no different or better behaved than non-religious people, then what is it we have to offer? You know, this is one of the things that confuses me about the bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And along with that comes a line of thought. And that line of thought is we Christians are really no better than anybody else. Uh, that we might not even be as, as good a person as my next door neighbor. That my next door neighbor is a bong salesman and he's a Buddhist, but actually he's a much finer human being than me, and he really has nothing to offer the world that's any better, I mean, any worse than what I do. You know, in fact, he has a better offer. Now, if we actually believe that, I'm not exactly sure what we are offering to the world. I mean, we're, if we don't think that being a better Christian, uh, being a better person, uh, growing into Christ-likeness, isn't better for the world and isn't superior to other philosophies and other means. I don't know what we're talking about. And so we, we can't assimilate into the world. Uh, if we do assimilate, we lose our distinctive. So to, remain, to maintain our distinctive, we have to maintain the fact that we are different but not different in a rude way, not different in a hostile way, not different in a kind of a weird way. Okay. Uh, that we're just, we're different because we have different standards, we have different worldview. So now, when it comes to what Nubigan is saying, a missionary encounter is not withdrawal from the world. We have to engage it. It's not a takeover of the world in a military or political sense, or a ruling class sense, and it's not assimilating into the world. So what is it? Well, first, it's confrontation. Now, let me just talk a little bit about what that means. Because by confrontation, what we don't mean is being hostile. Uh, what we don't mean is shaking our fingers at people. What we don't mean is being judgmental of people in the sense of looking down upon people or uh, telling people that their lives are less meaningful or that they're less important. Uh, it's not that kind of, we're not talking about that kind of confrontation. Uh, we, what we are talking about is Encountering people with the truth. And if you speak the truth in love, it's much more effective. So let's say that I establish a relationship with my neighbor. And the relationship I establish with him is uh, I become his friend. And we develop a level of trust. 
And as a result, we end up being able to converse with one another and trust one another. And then I can ask him a question uh, that like uh, Buddhism just essentially is about dealing with evil and suffering and accepting it. And there's really no specific way out except nirvana, which means nothing. And so explain to me your, li your life, your worldview, explain to me how you uh, find that satisfying and helpful. So by, that's the only way, and, and then if it, the person trusts you, they will start talking to you about it. But you have to engage them in this conversation. But the confrontation is, also, if you, if finally, I'm going to say what I think is true, and if I tell him that I think that his philosophy of life is flawed, that it's not true, that it's wrong, and about uh, that there is, there is a final judgment, and, and I start talking to him, I, I have to talk to this person about that. And if I don't talk to him about that, I'm not really telling them the truth, but I tell him the truth in relationship. And when I do that, I'm, I'm, in, I'm confronting him. Now, I think that the, probably the best biblical example of this is, remember when Paul went to Athens? And when he got to Athens, it says that he was provoked. And what provoked him was that he saw everywhere around him, he saw idols. He saw monuments. He saw temples. And in the marketplace where he went, it wasn't just a place that where you go, went and bought oranges, you know, it was, or, or carrots. Uh, you went there because that's, if you wanted to, it's like the stock, their, their, their version of the stock market, that was the marketplace. That's if you wanted to sell something, if you wanted to invest in something, if you wanted to um, engage in a business deal of some sort, if you wanted to go to the library, if you wanted to uh, have, a, you wanted to have debates with people about, with ideas, all that took place in the marketplace. And he went there and he was provoked and it says he went there every single day. And so finally, he started making headway. And then he was invited to Mars Hill, as you know. And when he, once he got invited there, this is the first time in the, the book of Acts, in the early church, that we have a recorded sermon that had nothing to do with Judaism, nothing to do with the covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and, and, or the Mosaic Law. None of that was included. And so essentially, what he did was he said, look, uh, I notice you're very religious people. You're very, I see all these temples, I see these altars, and you, I even saw one that says, to the unknown God. And, uh, and by the way, I'm here today to tell you about this God, and I know his name. His name is Jesus. And then the punchline, of course, is that he resurrected. And as soon as he said that, they just howled at him. Uh, they called him names. You hick, you idiot. But there's that little statement after all of that. And it says, but there were this person and that person and some other people who believed. Okay, so when you, so an encounter means you have to confront. And if you confront, you'll get converts. Now that's the only way you'll get the converts. And we talk about making disciples. Jesus said, go make disciples. Now, I just want to remind you that Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is not about being a disciple. It's not about being a better Christian. Matthew 28 is a strategy to reach the world. It assumes you're a disciple. And he's saying to them, those men, make disciples. And when they heard him, they knew what he meant. Why did they know what he meant? You know, I've been in rooms uh, filled with pastors, and you talk about discipleship, disciple making, and somebody will raise their hand, and they'll say, oh, uh, what do you mean by make disciples? Or, 
I've never been discipled. None of these guys, they, they may not have been Phi Beta Kappa. You know, they weren't the creme de la creme of Israel. They were not professionally educated. But one thing they didn't have a question about is what he meant when he said make disciples. Because they knew exactly what he meant. And what he meant was, now, you know, what they heard was, you know who you guys are. Okay, go make more of you. That's what I want you to do. Go make more of you. And you're going to go to every nation. Now, obviously, if it's every nation, every people group, every ethne, you have to know that, that that's a long-term project, but also that's an awful lot of people they don't know yet. And so what, if you're going to go to every nation, you're going to have to have more disciples. You're going to have to have many disciples. And to have more of something to have many of something that you presently don't have. You know what that means? They have to be new disciples. And so we look at our churches and we have discipleship programs. And we've had, let's say you've, you, you, took home, you took home some kind of program from some place where they were making disciples and they got a big church because of it. And so you say, all right, now we're going to do this at our church. And you do it for three years and you look at it, and what you don't have are new disciples. You just have better informed old disciples. <laughs> kind of cranky disciples. Because they're wondering, what happened? You go, this supposed discipleship thing is supposed to work. How come it's not working? Well, you have to reverse engineer the whole passage, the whole idea. Because what it was clear to them that once all they had to do was wait and the Holy Spirit came and then they flew out of the upper room and we know the story. And what happened was that they just did on the fly essentially what Jesus had taught them to do. So now, when we talk about converts, if you don't have any converts... Now, I don't, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand me here. You know what? Almost all churches can lead their children to Christ. All right? So, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. That's vital. That's fundamental. And really, there's nothing more important than making, tra passing on the faith to our children. So, I don't want you to misunderstand me. But what I'm talking about here. It's what we say we're doing as a church to reach people who are not already in the church. And if we actually follow it the way that Jesus told us to follow it, then what will happen is that we will have new disciples. And if we, if we teach them to obey everything that Christ commanded, you know what will happen? You'll get reproduction. You'll get multiplication. You'll get it. But the question, I went back to my seminary after I'd been gone for 35 years, and they, I spoke in chapel, and I said, what I've been doing the last 35 years, I know you don't really care what I've been doing the last 35 years. You've not asked me what I've been doing the last 35 years, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> and I've been forming a question, and this question I've formed is this. Why does the church insist on trying to reach the world without making disciples. And one of the great things about right, what's happening at this forum, what's happening around the country, what's happening around the world, is that now making disciples is front and center. But let's not lose this opportunity that the Holy Spirit, you know, the wave that we're riding this wave right now, let's not uh, allow the Holy Spirit, let's not let down, the, mess up the opportunity. Because we can have a flurry of disciple-making, a flurry of discipleship. And what will happen is if it doesn't create new, more, many disciples who, you know, you don't want to teach people to observe what Christ commanded. You want to teach people to obey what Christ commanded. Because if you don't obey, it's useless. It doesn't mean a thing. Because then we're just religiously schizophrenics, experts on what we're not experiencing.
Okay, so three marks of a missionary encounter. Confrontation, converts, and identification of cultural idols. And I'm not going to uh, go into that. That's a whole other subject. But the idols of our culture, I've mentioned reason already. I've mentioned, uh, you know, science is another. I mean, I'm a great believer in science. Uh, and if, as far as it goes, science can tell you about a lot of things that are important in life, but they can't tell you why you should do anything. They don't, it doesn't answer the question of a, the basic questions of a 10-year-old. So what I'd like to do at this point is open it up for some interaction because uh, how long, what time is this over? 3.45, okay. That long, huh? Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah, open the windows, yeah. Okay. All right, so uh, let's do some Q&A. And uh, if I can't answer the question, I'll call him on one of my uh, guys. And uh, so let's just open it up for anything I've talked about. Let's talk about it. Okay? How rude. Uh, yeah, how, can the West be one? Leslie Newbigin says, you're going to hate this. Only God knows. Uh, I think that it depends on what you mean by one. Uh, I believe that winning is... Matthew 24, 14, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to all the nations, then the end will come. To me, that is winning. And so it doesn't mean, you see, essentially, there was this uh, argument, and I've engaged in it in a few of my books, with uh, uh, James uh, Davidson Hunter. And uh, he's a sociologist at the University of Virginia and a brilliant guy, a lot smarter than me. That's why I like to engage because he never, he has never bothered to disagree with me. So I guess he maybe not even, doesn't even know that I've engaged him in a couple of my books. But um, his argument is that um, the way you reach a society is you, de you start with the elites. So the president of Harvard, what he believes is much more important than what your mailman believes. And so there's, there's, a, there's an element of truth in that. But what he's saying is that if you want to reach the world, you, you have to work through the elite, the cultural elites, uh, centers of power, uh, through politics and entertainment and all those kinds of things. And that, that's, I mean, it's not a wrong thing uh, to try to reach people in the political world or try to reach people in the academic world or uh, people in the entertainment world. That's not my point. The point is, uh, what comes first? And, and my argument was, take Rick Warren, for example. Uh, Rick Warren, when I first met Rick, he had cut, I was pastoring a church in the same community as where Saddleback Community Church is. And so Rick came to my church a couple of times. He visited. And, and I, I met him. And I, I thought, well, it's a, he's a nice young guy. He's about, I think, about six or seven years younger than me. And so we were talking. And, but I, I basically thought he was a cultural uh, outlier for Southern Cal. I didn't think he'd make it. I, I kind of felt sorry for him. Like, he wouldn't make it, you know, this guy. <laughs> now, I had to turn in my prophetic badge after that. <laughs> but well, one of the things, uh, uh, now, Rick Warren now is ahead of a worldwide force, Saddleback system. You know, we have a guy that's one of our Bonhoeffer Project leaders. Uh, his name is Brandon Bathauer, and uh, he's in charge of all the small groups, uh, the maturity base, I think, for Saddleback. And uh, one day I was asking Brandon, he called me up and asked me some questions about how they could you know, do some small work with small groups in the Saddleback system. And uh, I said, well, how many small groups do you, he writes the curriculum every week for all the groups in the Saddleback system. And I said, well, how many groups is that? And he said, 16,000. I went, say that again? <laughs> 16,000. Yeah, and every group has like 10 people in it. So, I mean, that's a lot of people in the whole system. And, and so Rick Warren is a very important person. Now, is he really important because he's a, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, when I met Rick, uh, 
What made Rick powerful? It was, Rick wasn't in charge of anything except himself when I first met him. All right, so now he's grown to become an elite. But one of my point is, is that the way you actually really influence culture and win culture is transforming of a person. You transform a person, and that person then can, has the potential of becoming an important person in the culture. And that was a discussion. And so the, I think, can the West be one means that, uh, you know, in Rome, we, we talk about the first three centuries. And by the third century, or by the fourth century, technically, uh, Christianity had won and become the dominant religion in the Greco-Roman world. And so this was about 325. And what happened in 410? Rome fell. So from 325 to 410, that's the basic life time, but essentially the whole thing came apart. So winning something, does it, winning a culture is really just a very temporary thing. It's not a total thing. Uh, the, the very nature of human beings, the very nature of what the Bible talks about when it describes us, means that winning means establishing a witness in culture, where we live, work, and play, in every domain of culture. And I think that's what winning is. Uh, yes, sir, right here. Yes. Uh, I think we're probably... Uh, if it's like anything else that's gone before, and the greatest predictor of the future is the past, and I think we're probably starting to uh, peak. The disciple-making emphasis is beginning to peak. I think it'll peak over the next two or three years, and then I think it'll begin to fade. Now, the reason I think that this is true is um, because, you know, going back to the early 70s, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, it was... Uh, it was a, a certain, there were certain initiatives in evangelism and in, uh, let's say, uh, there was crusade evangelism. There was Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, with the I Found It campaign, reaching the whole, reaching the United States by 1976, the world by 1980. And so we went through all of that. Uh, there has been the Promise Keepers movement. There's been all kinds of things, and I'm not saying these aren't good things. I mean, they're like shots in the arm. But I think that uh, fundamentally there was the revival movements. There have been the prayer movements, the pastoral prayer movements. Uh, there, uh, these various movements, essentially what they have in common is the reason that they, they have a kind of a bell curve effect is because human beings are involved. And what happens is that we're not really de dealing with some of the underlying issues we have. And the underlying issues is the reason I'm interested in prayer. I mean, I have to confess this. You get together with a bunch of pastors and you're praying for a city and all that stuff. And after about two or three years, they figure out it's not leading to their churches getting any bigger. So that kind of goes by the way. And then they try... You know, then we try something else. And that doesn't make our churches bigger, so we get rid of that. And we, we pray for revival because we read about what happened back in the 1800s in a monolithic culture where everybody pretty much believed all the same things. And uh, where now we have this society that's all partitioned and blocked. And what revival looked like then isn't what it looks like now. It's just not, I mean, read Oz Guinness's The American Hour, one of the very best books I've ever read. And it reads, he's a good sociologist, Oz is, and he, he does a great job with this subject. Uh, so I, I'd say that if we can come to terms with the fact that we, you know, Eugene Peterson just died and, or got promoted, and, <laughs> and uh, Eugene Peterson was probably, if I were going to say, read one book to calm yourself down, it would be the pastor, his autobiography. Because essentially it says, instead of living off the spiritual junk food of society and all for success. You know, remember, I used to call it my 30 minutes of hell. 
my 30 minutes of hell was on Sunday morning, the 15 minutes prior to the service, and the first 15 minutes into the service. Because in that 30 minutes, it would determine if I was going to be happy or sad. Because essentially, either we're going to have a big crowd, and I'm going to be charged up, and God's here, or where is everybody? Oh, man, I'm quitting. <laughs> now, you may not be, be have, as paranoid or uh, whatever as I was, but... The thing is that when you realize there's something fundamentally wrong when conditions have that much influence on me. And I think we have to get at that. And that's why Peterson is so good. You know, there's another little book he called uh, Working the Angles. Sandy Mason was talking about this the other day in our symposium. But Working the Angles, you know, there's a chapter on image projection. You know, how, how you learn in seminary to have a certain image as pastor, you know, to say the pastoral prayer. And uh, I remember when I first started as a pastor, there was the pastoral prayer thing. And they wanted me to give a pastoral prayer. And they wanted, and I couldn't make my voice quiver during the pastoral prayer like the previous pastor. And I really tried. And I, you know, people could make their voices, you know, the kind of years ago, people could quiver. They could, they could do stuff that I couldn't do. And uh, I didn't cry enough when I preached. You know, things like that. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, somewhat my, I remember my superintendent just told me once, he says, Bill, here's the deal. Stand in front of the mirror and say, it's okay to be Bill Hull. Yeah. And I looked in front, and I looked in the mirror, and I, oh, it's okay. Really? It's okay, I'm not so sure, it's okay to be Bill Hall. And, and that's, that's really important. That's, that's really important. That it's okay to be you. And that God loves you. And, you know, if you have a you know, big success, I mean, it's a lot more fun to be successful. I mean, I, I suppose it is. Uh, <laughs> I've heard it is, and uh, but um, but you know if, if that's what it takes to make me happy, then uh, I, I just remember I told Rick Warren this once. I, I said I was reading a, an article about you, Rick, in the USA Today one day, in uh, a hotel lobby, and I was reading it, and it was a really long article about Rick and about how many people that he was reaching for Christ and, and uh, how much in demand he was, you know, and all these kinds of things. And, and as I read that article, it's like somebody, like I was a, an inflatable bean, and somebody had pulled the plug. And as I, the more I read, the smaller I got until I disappeared <laughs> under the paper. <laughs> now that, my friends, is uh, the problem is what is what is feeding you what is make what do you have a satisfied soul i could go on forever i'm an expert on this subject you know because i'm so messed up so okay uh we got a few more questions and then we'll have to do the giveaways okay right here okay this is uh, you hear this question question is you know there's a standard uh the, one of the first things that uh that occurs to you if you're reading the new testament carefully <laughs> is that you know, the, God, the word disciples used 269 times and the word Christians used three times. But when you read it, most all the mentions of disciple are in the Gospels. And uh, there's a few in the book of Acts. But, and there's 13 times in the, new, in, the, in the epistles, you have Paul using the word methetes in a verbal form, which means to learn. All right? So uh, here's what I, I think... Uh, is an important deal. First of all, that the way the word is being used is um, the the chronological the chronology the chronology of the New Testament is not in the same order as the English Bible appears. Okay, that's the first thing you just have to say. Okay, wait a minute. Now, uh, but probably a good way to draw it up, which I won't, but uh, is to. Take a look at the book of Acts, you know, the first, you know, 30 or 40, 50 years of, of the church history, and then track this issue. And so essentially, here's what I think the answer is. 
that, of course, the word disciple is used more in the Gospels because it was more in connection to the culture, mm -hmm. the Hebraic culture. But even though discipleship began in the Greco-Roman world but, uh, but 300 years earlier. But the idea is that that's the way they had a guru, and you'd follow your guru, and you'd be a disciple or a learner or an adherent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when the, when the book of Acts opens... Disciples are no longer called the disciples. The historical 12 are no longer called disciples. They're called apostles. And then there are replacement words, and they're all synonyms in the New Testament. Disciple, brethren, uh, followers of the way, all of these terms, there's like six or seven of them, and they're all used interchangeably in the book of Acts. But the more you get out of Hebrew culture into Hellenistic culture and then into Gentile culture, the words change, the languages change. So essentially it gets to be, uh, what is it we mean by this? And uh, what, how, how do you, when you read the epistles, how is discipleship practiced? And it's just, it's just written differently with different words, and it's written to groups of congregates, uh, like the book of Ephesians and things like that. So man, that's basically the way I understand it. Uh, I don't think it means, like one guy told me once, that discipleship passed out of existence. And uh, I said, well, is that why Jesus prayed in John 17, that he prayed for his men, and he prayed for everybody who would ever believe in him, and he said that we're going to make disciples until the end comes. And we know this. I know that I like, the Nashville's a nice place, but I don't think this is heaven, or at least the new heaven. Yeah, but we, we don't want to confuse. I mean, I agree, maturity is an issue, a big issue, but maturity is not about Bible knowledge. No. You know, it's not primarily about, oh, uh, I don't do those things uh, that we have often confused with holiness. But the idea is that we as, if you are a disciple and you haven't made another disciple, you're not mature. Just plain and simple. If you're spiritually sterile, then you're not mature. Well, I think that the, uh, you know, if I were to, if I were to describe this, I suppose it would be, you know, uh, you're, I have to draw this. So some of you are old enough to remember Engel's scale. Uh, Engel's scale is, here's the middle, it's a cross, that means the point of conversion. You know, where a person actually becomes a believer in Christ is born again. Okay, so essentially Engel's scale uh, was, let's say, minus 7, minus 6, minus 5, minus 4, so on down to zero, then plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four. And so essentially what Eng Engel was saying in his book, What's Gone Wrong with the Harvest, years ago, was that it takes several encounters with people to move people from, this means uh, you go to minus 10, that means no knowledge of God whatsoever. And so Person, persons are gaining more knowledge, having experiences, having encounters with people, and it keeps moving them this direction. And then once they become a Christian, then there's other people, other events that keep moving people out here. Because when we say make disciples, this is the goal. This is not the goal here. This is the goal right there. And so how, do you, how does this work? Well, if you take your average church person... And what you do is you're essentially trying to develop this person into a mature, reproducing disciple. A person that loves the world like Christ loves the world. Okay, now this person has a gift or gifts. Okay? And some of them, you know, and, and we know that there's a lot of spiritual gifts. And essentially what I'm saying is if you can train people, the church is for discipleship. But disciples, disciples are God's delivery system to the world. And so the way it works is you train these people and you develop these people. You know your product is a, a fruit-bearing, reproducing disciple. And now you get all these people and they, they start utilizing these gifts. You know, some of these people, this is all like you could say, 
This is discipleship. You're making a disciple if you're helping people move closer to Christ. So you might just be driving somebody to the hospital. You might be just taking groceries to someone. You might just be friendly to somebody because the number one thing you can do for a person, just listen to them. And so essentially, all of the gifts of the body, you unleash them, so to speak, in this and over here too. You see, so you can employ the whole church. To me, this is what the church is really meant to be, is it's, it's doing the work. It's doing the ministry. It's doing, it's evangelizing. It's discipling. It's doing all that kind of thing. But this, to me, is all discipleship. And uh, because, you see, essentially, again, we could do a whole seminar on this, but uh, one more minute, and then we're going to... Um, if, if UPS decided that they were going to get rid of their trucks and just make us all go to the distribution center to get our packages, we'd think that was pretty foolish. But our churches, we've been doing that for a very, very long time. And uh, we say, you know, come get your package on Sunday or Wednesday. Uh, we're open these hours. Otherwise, don't come close. We've got guard dogs and police officers guarding, guarding the place. And uh, what we, we, we have, we have we don't, we'll distribute uh, the package to you. Now, that, that would be foolish. And so that's the attractional church. And we've, we worked really hard at being attractional. And that's not really, there's, you know, there's two ways the word go is used in the New Testament. Uh, one is go, make disciples. And the other is we, we came up with this idea of go to church. Now, this should drive you crazy, this idea of go to church, because we are the church. Uh, we, as a church, we gather for discipleship, but we scatter for ministry and living our lives. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Bonhoeffer Project and their track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Download a free ebook primer for Bill Hull and Ben Sobel's book, The Discipleship Gospel, by going to discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.